Blog Talk Radio. If you were hoping to be able to hear some fascinating ideas about how you can get relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, you have arrived at the right place. This is Parkinson's Recovery and Robert Rogers. For those of you who are new to Parkinson's Recovery, I am a social science researcher who has worked at flagship state universities in Texas and at Kentucky doing traditional research for 20 years. I have a long list of publications that are all narrowly focused, and I must admit now, after 20 years of doing that kind of work, have made a relatively local and inconsequential contribution uh, to the world. Now, they were published in uh, very prestigious journals, uh, and I was handsomely rewarded and published for my work, but I decided all of that really wasn't making a hill of a beans of difference. What I've decided to do with my life is to approach research in a very different way. So I'm focusing on the symptoms of Parkinson's, and I am looking anywhere and everywhere for ideas and suggestions that are proven uh, to provide relief for individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's. Some of the programs that we have scheduled that are coming up in my weekly Internet program that you are now listening to every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific time cover topics like magnet therapy. I don't know anything about that, but we'll find out more when we do the interviews. Stem cell therapy, the effect of herbs uh, on being able to provide relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. How about we'll be talking to a psychic and see what a psychic has to say that might be of some benefit and some help. We'll be talking to energy healers and individuals who do quantum healings and basically you name it. I get lots of suggestions, lots of emails uh, from those of you who are listening and I take those and I literally run with them. I find individuals that I can interview who give us great ideas and suggestions for how you can get relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. Today, the program focuses on one quite fascinating approach that research has shown yields significant improvement in symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and that is music therapy. A lot of people uh, give music a second-grade uh, value. Uh, and that was certainly true in school systems where all of the arts and music were considered to be sort of the, the bottom wrong course that you can take. But the bottom line is music has a powerful effect on our energy systems, the degree to which we may be depressed or not depressed, our mobility. And as you will hear from the international expert that I interviewed today, it has enormous impacts on individuals who have neurological conditions. I now am going to play the first segment of my pre-recorded interview from yesterday of Dr. Wendy McGee. And um, I also want to invite anybody out there that is currently listening to the program who has any experience with using music, 
as a useful aid in giving relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's to call into the show, signal you'd like to talk, and we'd love to hear from you. And I know there are also music therapists out there that are listening to the show. If you've got some experience uh, working with individuals with the symptoms of Parkinson's, please call in. We'd like to be able to hear your experience. You can call in. It's a United States number, 347-945-5358. If you were hoping to be able to find out more about how music can help with the symptoms of a Parkinson's, you are at the right place. This is Parkinson's Recovery, and this is Robert Rogers. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Wendy McGee, who is an international fellow in music therapy at the Institute of Neuropalliative Rehabilitation from the Royal Hospital of Neurodisability in London, England. Now, my first question really is to ask you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and about how you got interested in doing research involving music therapy in neurological conditions. Well, I've worked for a long time as a music therapist since about uh, 1987, and I've always had a very strong interest in both neurology, but also palliative care, and more recently, this area of uh, medicine is called neuropalliative rehabilitation. So we're really talking about uh, conditions such as multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, motor neurone disease, where we're talking about people who have an acquired neurological problem, um, and they're, 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 they're trying to sort of maintain their best function as possible for as long as they can. Your primary area of interest uh, clearly is in research. You are extensively published and you have given presentations all over the world. Are you also a music therapist? Yes, uh, music therapists are most usually trained professional musicians who have come into music therapy because they're interested in looking at how music can help improve different sorts of human conditions. Uh, so you'll find music therapists who are working in, um, in special education with children, uh, in elderly care with people with dementia or who are frail, in neurology with people who've had strokes, head injuries, with other sorts of neurological problems. Uh, with people in um, forensic settings, so people who are in prison, with people who maybe have mental health problems. These are possibly some of the more usual areas that you might find music therapists. And usually people are trained musicians, and they've they've, they've had specific training in music therapy, which sort of covers um, other areas besides just music. We look at areas of psychology, therapeutic applications, neurophysiology, So we have an understanding of how music affects both the the psyche as well as the the neurological functioning of an individual. When you refer to music therapists, is it the case that a music therapist can be a percussionist or a flutist or a violinist or a celloist? That is, can a music therapist play any instrument? Absolutely. And actually, you know, uh, the more instruments one plays, then the greater versatility one has as a therapist. As an example, I I trained as a pianist and then uh, a harpsichordist. 
I'm also a very keen singer. I'm a very bad flautist. <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually what I found in my work is that, um, and I also play a little bit of guitar. I can use percussion in a variety of ways. But what, what you find is that depending on how you're working with somebody, what somebody's problems are, then you might adapt uh, which instrument you use, uh, certainly the methods you use, and how you might work together. So for instance, I've done a lot of work with people who are emerging from coma in what's known as low awareness state, the vegetative state or minimally conscious state. And certainly in situations like that, you've got somebody who's um, not able to move very much, they're very still, they often don't make very, much sound, very, very many sounds themselves. And so I find the most powerful tool, musical tool to use in that situation is my voice. And I'll spend a lot of time just breathing with somebody and then, and then using my voice to sing to them, possibly using very um, intimate instruments as well, such as the guitar. Uh, working in palliative care, I found that using the flute is a particularly powerful instrument. And certainly using something like, like the piano is, is very uh, versatile in many different ways, in many different settings. What are the techniques that music therapists use to help individuals with neurological challenges and in particular with the symptoms of Parkinson's? Well, the first part would be actually meeting with the person and assessing what they feel their problems are. And as we know, somebody with Parkinson's is likely to be having problems particularly with their gait, with their walking pattern. They may be having problems with their, with their speech and their voice production. They may be having problems with their um, facial expressions. They may be having difficulties with their fine motor control and their finger and hand movements. These would be some of the more usual sorts of symptoms, as, as many of your listeners will know. Now, uh, there's a range of, of methods available for music therapists, but just to give some concrete examples of each of those, or rather just to actually get right to the core of it, what we know now from the research in music therapy and neurology and we also know this from um, brain imaging studies, which have had a look at um, how the brain is influenced by music. We know that rhythm seems to have a very particular effect on, uh, on, on human behavior. It seems to be that the auditory perception pathways in the brain, so uh, our, our brain hears music, uh, the sounds are traveling along the auditory perception um, pathways, and rather than this having to actually be processed and thought about by individuals, what happens with sound is that it seems to have this direct connection to the sensory motor physical pathways in the brain. So the results we see uh, with, a, with a method uh, that's known as rhythmic auditory stimulation, what we see is that actually by the use of pulse, and by that I mean something like a metronome. So for example, if I click my fingers, That's an example of a pulse, it's a regular, systematic speech. What we know is that actually hearing a pulse can affect somebody's um, gait pattern. So the person hears the sound, and before the sound actually gets processed at some higher level within the brain, it cuts across straight into the sensory motor pathways and can, can have a direct effect on somebody's walking pattern and their gait pattern. And this is one of the, the, the most interesting uh, results of music therapy, is actually looking at people with disordered gait patterns, whether that be uh, walking too fast, taking too many steps within a short 
uh, within a short distance. What we know is that the use of pulse and the careful planned use of music where you're particularly focusing on the manipulation of pulse, what we see is that people improve their, um, their, uh, the, 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 the length of their, their gait, of their walking pattern. It also can improve the speed and the regularity of their walking pattern as well. And so what we see is that somebody can actually manage their walking so much better, which of course then reduces the risks of falls. I assume that the actual pace of a pulse would be a critical issue. Uh, that must be one reason why it's advisable for a person to find a qualified music therapist to help them sort through what particular pace would be most useful for them? Absolutely. And it's not even a matter of figuring out a pace for a person and giving them a tape of music at that pace to go away. It's really something which needs assessment. So you, have first, you first of all have a look at the person walking without any sort of auditory stimulation. You uh, do an assessment of uh, how fast they're walking um, over, over, over a certain distance and what their particular gait pattern is. And then you start off at one particular rate pulse, one particular speed or tempo if you like. And then you look at um, incrementally increasing this uh, so that the person can manage it. And then you also look gradually at withdrawing the musical stimulus so the person is actually walking more regularly without the music playing. And some of the most interesting research results that have been found have looked at a, um, a home program. After people have had rhythmic auditory stimulation within the lab setting or within the clinical setting, they've then um, gone away with their, um, with, the, with their tapes of music which have been made specifically for them at the pace at which they can walk They've practiced at home, and there's been follow-up studies having a look at how that person's um, walking is without any sort of musical stimulation six weeks later. And what's been shown is that there's a significant improvement in how people walk uh, weeks after having the initial training and even outside of a music condition. So a uh, person goes to the particular workshop, and what they get, and as I understand it, is a specific tape of music that's tailored and designed to help them with their mobility. Do I understand that right? And they take that home then and use that at home? That's certainly correct. I mean, first of all, you would work with live music with a music therapist. But of course, we all need something to take home and practice on our own. I mean, with any sort of therapy, with physiotherapy, you're given exercises to do at home. And it's just the same with music therapy in this particular instance. One would look at um, encouraging the person to practice at home and improving that they're walking at home. And so that they can feel more independent and more in ownership as well of what they're doing within their therapy. Now, are these ideas something that a person could go with uh, who was hesitant to involve a qualified music therapist? That is, is could a person at home just begin to try to uh, uh, give themselves a pulse or a beat and see if that helps their gait? In other words, could this be self-administered or, or are there some cautions uh, to, to a person to, uh, to really not proceed in that way, but rather involve a person who is a qualified music therapist? I think to get the best sort of treatment, to get the optimal treatment, which of course is what we all want when we, when we want help with something, uh, it would be advisable to go in and um, actually have a program set up for you. Uh, I mean, I've just given one example of using music to improve walking patterns. There's also examples of different types of methods to improve things like um, uh, uh, producing vocal sounds and improving your whole 
speech, motor patterns, and also uh, well, the, the main things actually producing voice and, and improving speech motor patterns. I mean, what I would say is that um, once somebody has some idea about how music can be used, they can try different things at home. And certainly, I mean, singing along to one's favourite music wouldn't be harmful as such. But if you're really looking at getting the best sort of uh, improvement from a treatment, then you really want to be looking at, at getting advice from a specialist. I'm Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery, and I'm back live. You are listening to an interview that I did just yesterday with Dr. Wendy McGee, who is the International Fellow in Music Therapy at the Institute of Neuropalliative Rehabilitation. For those of you who are new to my Internet program, on the Internet program page, there is a chat room. The chat room is open, and you can sign in. Uh, if you'd like to just see the chat, and you don't have to sign in, you can anybody can see that. But if you'd like to participate and talk with other individuals who are listening to this program live, you can do that by simply entering your email address. And obviously, people who are listening to this program happen to be particularly interested in this specific topic. So, Robert Rogers, Parkinson's Recovery, you're listening to my interview with Dr. Wendy McGee. Back to the interview. How much improvement could a, could a person potentially expect in their mobility who uses music therapy to help them out? Is it possible that uh, their mobility could improve 25% or even 50% if they use music therapy to uh, help them be able to become more mobile? I think the, uh, the answer to that would really be very much an individual one. So I think I, I certainly don't feel able to give some sort of uh, general, general percentage of how somebody might improve. And it, it would depend on several factors such as um, the uh, extent to which somebody's um, gait is, is, is a problem at the current time and what the different factors are feeding into that. And certainly, you know, how regularly somebody is, is, is practicing, um, uh, you know, exercising, if you like, and certainly how regularly they might have follow-up. How can music therapy be used to help and assist individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's? Mm. But music, as we know, uh, because we all use music, it's very rare that somebody doesn't use music for their own emotional benefit in life. We know that music can help us along psychological paths in terms of our emotional well-being and uh, music can certainly help along lines of improving cognitive performance as well as uh, speech parameters as well. So some examples of this might be that somebody might uh, use music to uh, do some work around life reminiscence, life review, thinking about uh, where they've come from, what they've achieved, where they're going to, and um, where, where they are at the current time. Similarly, people may use music in their relationships with others, thinking about significant others in one's life, uh, a parent, a sibling, a partner, a child. Um, and certainly music can be something which, which, as we all know, brings us together through through uh, typical sort of ritual experiences such as spiritual worship or through social activities such as dancing. Music can also be used to help somebody think about how to improve or um, yeah, improve the quality of their relationships really. 
Similarly, I've mentioned about uh, singing and voice techniques. Now, there are very specific methods that music therapists can help somebody learn, where they can be working on, uh, uh, working towards functional improvement in these parameters. But most certainly, working uh, with, with uh, singing to music helps to deepen the, 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 the breath, um, it helps to in, improve somebody's breath control. This, infect, this in turn affects things like voice production, voice projection, the duration of sound, uh, of time that somebody's able to achieve a vocal sound. And so certainly there, there are, there are um, activities and uh, organisations which don't involve music therapists per se, but which some of your listeners may be able to access, such as choirs, where they might be able to go and join and actually work on developing their, their breathing, their vocalising and their singing. Uh, for example, I work with a choir called Sing for Joy in London, who are a group of people with Parkinson's and other sorts of uh, chronic conditions who have set up a choir for themselves and their carers. They manage the choir. And what this group has found is that uh, they, they have improved health and well-being following singing together within a group. So they do this with a, they, they have a musical director. They don't necessarily have a music therapist involved. But the, the, the group experience of singing together, the group experience of coming together with others who have similar sorts of problems, and the physical experience of singing certainly has effects on both physical and emotional well-being. I know uh, many support groups ask me, well, what kind of activities can they do? It sounds like that's one. They can actually sing together when they meet. I'm uh, wondering in general about your specific work with electronic music therapy. I know you've done quite a bit of research in that. Could you tell us some about your work in that area? Yes, certainly. I, I, I work with people who have really complex problems. So a lot of the people I work with uh, who are more typically people with um, very complex disabilities following severe and profound brain injury, people with very uh, chronic advanced multiple sclerosis, people with Huntington's disease. What I found working with a lot of these people is that they have not only very um, limited movements and sometimes possibly practically no active movement at all. But even if people do have movements, they're very weak or they're very poorly controlled. Now as a music therapist, I'm most interested in engaging somebody in actively making music because what music therapy is about is about the, um, the planned use of music in an interactive um, dialogue between the therapist and the client to really improve that, that, that client's um, sense of well-being, health and sense of well-being. So a lot of the people I work with, um, I'm trying to engage them in making musical sounds. That means either playing instruments or it might mean producing vocal sounds. But a lot of the people I work with can't access traditional acoustic instruments because their movements are just too small or too weak. Uh, and sometimes people can't make vocal sounds. And so, um, a long time ago, actually about 20 years ago, even when the idea of using technology within this sort of work was unusual, I found that using particular software programs, um, which are linked to assistive technology devices, and by this I'm talking about things like a simple switch 
or a floor pad or a, a whistle you might blow, electronic whistle you might blow. Um, these, these tools can actually help somebody to make musical sounds and thereby it helps to engage somebody actively in the music making process and that can open up a whole, a whole new arena for uh, interactive music making which means music therapy or it might mean um, playing with other people in a, in a recreational music situation or it might mean just that person uh, creating and composing music for themselves. So are in the work you're doing, uh, particularly with electronic music therapies, but also uh, in, for music therapists in general, are you helping people rewire their neural networks? Well, that seems to be the evidence which is coming out from a, from a range of um, uh, uh, fields at the moment. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, the only uh, way we had of researching the effects of music um, on people who had difficulties because of a brain problem was looking at how they behaved when we, when we played music with them, to them. We didn't really have any more precise way of having a look at that. But with the, with, with the advancement of technology, the, the, the results of that have been that the, the equipment and technology for actually having a look at people's responses within their brains, what's going on within their brains, become highly sophisticated and much more advanced. And so what we know from the areas of neuromusicology, which is where there might be brain scanning going on whilst somebody is thinking about music or singing or playing music, what we know from these areas is that actually we, can, we now have the scientific proof to say that music seems to have very, um, music accesses very complex global pathways all over the brain. So what this means is that when somebody has damage to one particular part of their brain, say it's an area involved in language production, what we know is that music can uh, sometimes skirt around this by finding alternative routes. By listening to music, singing music and playing music, it's like we light up other areas of the brain and the brain finds new routes to actually uh, access uh, uh, functions which may be damaged because of brain damage. Does a person have to be able to like listening to the music, or, or does it not matter? I think, yes. I, I think it's very important that, that, that the music that one uses is something that's, that's meaningful, as meaningful as possible. Um, and an example of this might be that uh, even if you're working with a music therapist who's helping you work on your gait, uh, your, your walking patterns, it's important that, you know, if you like country and western music, that it's country and western music or something very similar being used, that it wouldn't be classical music or, or, or vice versa. Similarly, if you're working on singing songs to improve your vocal functioning and your speech production, it's really important that you feel motivated enough to actually want to sing those songs. So it is quite important that you are using music which means something to you, something which you enjoy. You know, we all know that we're more motivated to engage with something when we enjoy it. What about a person that would say to you, I've never been a singer, I can't sing, I hate listening to myself sing. Would you still encourage that person to do some singing, particularly if they're having some vocalization challenges? Well, certainly most people I work with um, instantly say something like, I can't play an instrument, or they say I'm tone deaf or I was told when I played the recorder at school that I wasn't musical, 
or even terrible stories like I was told to mime in the choir at school. These are very common experiences. It's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. Yeah, it's awful. Because, because what we know is that when we are born, we don't have language, but we do use musical sounds to communicate our immediate feeling states. So a newborn infant communicates how they are feeling spontaneously and innately by using things such as volume, pitch, and the higher pitch compared to a lower pitch, things like melodic contour, so a rising, you know, a rising pitch that comes right up like this, will communicate something very different from a pitch that comes down like this. So music, music is an innate uh, ability for all human beings and their communication. So when I am faced with somebody who says that they don't want to sing and they're very self-conscious about their voice, I certainly, uh, music therapists would certainly respect how somebody feels sensitive about that. But I guess the way we might work with somebody is to get them to think about what they would like to achieve functionally. Would you actually like to be able to achieve um, a better sound on one breath so that you're not taking a breath for every syllable that you're producing, which again can be very typical of um, somebody with the sorts of problems that, that, that people with Parkinson's have. So we might try and work really functionally on that with somebody and keep them focused on what the functional gains are. So it's not a matter of coming along and having to do an audition, sing a song on your own and feel very vulnerable and exposed. It's more about, okay, what is it that you want to achieve? Let's think about how music can help you get there. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. You are listening to my pre-recorded interview from yesterday with Dr. Wendy McGee, who is truly an international expert on music therapy and is telling us all about how it can be used by individuals with the symptoms of Parkinson's. At the conclusion of the interview yesterday, we had some additional discussion, which actually was not recorded, but she explained that in the choir work in London, there are individuals who have collected together who sing in choirs who have the symptoms of Parkinson's and report that is uh, yielding significant positive returns to the quality of their life and uh, a relief from their symptoms. She also indicated that uh, there was a good possibility I might be able to interview some of those individuals in a later program. So we'll be able to actually hear from individuals who use the principles and concepts in uh, music theory uh, and therapy uh, to be able to get wonderful relief from their symptoms. I also want to point out to all of those of you who are new to my Internet radio program that all of the programs are recorded, and you can always download any previous program and listen to it at your leisure. So, for instance, uh, you, you're listening to this live. Uh, don't worry about it if you have to leave or you get you have another more immediate demand that distracts your attention. Uh, you can always listen to the program later. One possibility is to download the programs onto your MP3 player if you have one, and then when you do your daily exercise or your walks, you can just listen to the programs then. So there are lots of opportunities. The Internet uh, uh, program uh, company uh, that I use promises me that these programs will be archived 
forever. <laughs> so I, I'm, I assume that that's true, true. They'll be true to their word, and you'll always be able to uh, download any of the programs. And that's always on the main webpage that you're looking at now, which is blogtalkradio.com, and then slash my particular page is Parkinson's dash. Recovery. We now return to the next segment of my interview with Dr. McGee. I have uh, seen in the long listing of uh, research that you have done and others have done, discussions of differences between listening to music and improvisation. How, what is the difference? There? What does the research say about the difference between those two approaches in music therapy? Well, if we think, first of all, just on a very practical level about the difference, when we listen to music, we're often sitting still. We might be tapping our toes. We might be humming or nodding our head. But it's usually a more physically passive uh, experience. When we're talking about somebody improvising music, what we mean by this is somebody who's actively engaged in making sounds. It might be with their voice or it might be on instruments. And certainly within um, Europe and also within uh, America, but most certainly within Europe, uh, improvisation is a very common tool within music therapy. It's a very common method. Now, the research that I've been involved in doing um, around improvisation and listening has, was with people with very advanced uh, multiple sclerosis and very chronic physical problems because of multiple sclerosis. And certainly what that research found was that when people are engaged in actively making music, they're going through a very physical process. They're having to reach outside their immediate physical boundaries. They're having to negotiate their environment. They're having to negotiate their whole physical functioning, which often is quite changed from how it was before they were ill. And so what you find is that people are testing the boundaries of their physical functioning, if you like. Whereas with listening, uh, what we know certainly from some recent research that took place in Finland with uh, people in stroke rehabilitation, where the effects of music listening were looked at, is that, is that music listening can still have an effect on people's cognitive performance and certainly their, their mood, their, their, how, how they're feeling. Um, and I believe that there were some results as well about um, improvements in language ability uh, through listening to music following stroke. But I guess that's the big difference. When we're talking about improvising, we're talking about active physical engagement, um, which is going to also involve things like breathing, physical extension, range of motion. When we're talking about listening, we're talking about something which is possibly a little bit more psychological. Can music be used to assess the condition of a person's neurological health? Well, that's a, that's a very good question, and it's uh, one which many professionals from many different disciplines uh, are certainly coming to not only believe, but actually demonstrate through some of this brain imaging research that I was talking about. I mean, what we know is that a person, a person sings and plays music as they are, and that's not so much an observation from science, that's an observation from art. We know that somebody sings and plays as they are, as they, as they are in themselves and as they are physically and emotionally. Yes, most certainly music therapy, music can be a fantastic tool in terms of uh, assessing how somebody is. It can also be a way that somebody might assess how they are feeling. I mean, many of us use music at the end of the day or 
driving along in our cars to match our mood or to change our mood. So I think many of us use music in this way anyway. What we certainly know from some of the brain imaging research going on is that uh, certainly musical functioning both relates to other sorts of functioning but also can sometimes uh, supersede other sorts of functioning. It, it, it can, it, it's better. It's, uh, it, it's better than, than other sorts of functioning. Working with people who have complex problems uh, from neurological difficulties and most typically people with neurological illness or trauma have complex problems. What we know is that just relying on one particular mode of assessment is not enough. It's not enough to rely on just behavioural observations. It's not enough just to rely on brain scans. It's not enough to rely on medical assessments, physio assessments, psychology assessments or music therapy assessments. We really need to draw in all the different uh, uh, parts of the jigsaw to get the full picture. So music therapy is one part of being able to contribute to a, a complex uh, diagnosis and assessment. There may be some people who are listening to this discussion who are skeptics. That is, what they're going to say to themselves is, well, maybe, maybe not, but uh, I have my doubts. Is there any specific suggestion you would make to such a skeptic uh, uh, any suggestion of what they might try to do for themselves to let them actually see that, yes, music can make a big difference in their life? And I, I think, just first of all, I think it's very important to be sceptical. I mean, if, if, if I was in pain and was thinking about acupuncture, I'd want to know what the, what the evidence is. I think it's, it's healthy and it's, it's very prescient, it's very current to actually think, well, what is the evidence that this works? None of us want to invest time and money and personal energy in something that we don't know is going to be effective. So I think people should be, you know, you should be sceptical and actually want to know what is the evidence and what can I do. What I'd say is that there is quite a lot of published evidence about the uh, different effects of music therapy on different sorts of neurological problems. And certainly if people are interested in having a look at the quality of the evidence or the types of evidence, then there are websites that we can direct them to. Um, and I would say that uh, encouraging people to use music for themselves, possibly starting off with something, uh, a very simple way of doing that, possibly through listening, using music as a way to help with relaxation, um, helping music as a way to help with developing maybe um, depth of breathing, breathing rate, vocal production. Well, I would say trying, just trying some things like maybe singing a song to oneself when one's walking, uh, or possibly uh, singing a song out loud. If one, you know, if, if, it sort of depends on what one's problem is. If, if one's problem is, is, is about walking, then I would think, try singing a song to yourself when you're walking. See how that might affect the regularity of your pace. See how it affects your stamina, your motivation. Similarly, if, uh, if you are interested in trying to improve your vocal production, Maybe think about using a song which is particularly meaningful, a song which you love, a song which is sung by somebody with whom you identify. Now this isn't music therapy per se, and one won't necessarily see scientific results, but you might get a sense of how different you feel afterwards, as we certainly see in the, in the choir Sing for Joy, where people um, qualitatively, this hasn't been measured scientifically yet, but qualitatively have observed that they feel better and stronger after singing together. So, 
people feel a bit strange about singing out loud when, for example, they are challenged with crossing a busy street. I saw a few research articles that uh, addressed the issue of mental singing as might be used to improve gait and mobility. Can a person sing to themselves and find that that can also help improve their gait and mobility without having to be vocal? Certainly some of the research which has come out has suggested that, yes, people with, um, I can't remember if it was Parkinson's disease or stroke, I think it was Parkinson's disease, um, just even internalizing the song and singing to oneself seemed to have an effect on walking. And certainly when I suggested before, try singing your favorite song and walking to it. Yes, even internalizing that, the, the, the key to it all seems to be this pulse and rhythm. That seems to be the absolute key to using music. Uh, in helping people improve their functioning. You mentioned a tailor-made home-based gait training program that you designed as a result of your workshops that was shown to have significant help and assistance for people. Is there a generic home-based gait training program, music-based gait training program, that uh, you'd like for people to know about? There isn't a generic one. Um, there's, uh, there, there are programs which can be devised for people. It's very much based on their, their rate of walking and their particular sort of gait problems. So again, what I would suggest is actually um, having an assessment from somebody who's trained in something like neurologic music therapy uh, in this specific method of, of rhythmic auditory stimulation and then a, a home program can be devised for you. Some of the research articles that are listed on your quite incredible uh, website uh, address the issue of combining speech with music therapy. I don't quite know exactly what that means. Could you tell us more about what that's about? Yes. Uh, well, for both, for both speech and singing, we know that we use our voices. Um, one of the important facets of speech and language is that they are functions which are based uh, predominantly within the left hemisphere of the brain. But as I commented earlier, what we know now both scientifically and observationally is that music seems to have these global pathways uh, right across the brain. So we know that there are commonalities between music and speech, both use our voice, or singing and speech both use our voice, um, and within speech there's many musical parameters. You'll hear me using different rhythms, different tempos in the way I speak, different melodic contours, accents, these are all musical parameters. And so because there are so many commonalities, we know that singing can actually be a more motivating way for somebody to practice uh, speech, uh, speech language uh, uh, exercises. We know that somebody, yes, yeah, so we know that somebody might be more motivated to do that. We know that somebody may be able to sing more easily than they can speak. And certainly, this is not so much a problem with somebody with Parkinson's, but for people who have problems accessing language, finding words, which is typical of some strokes, music seems to be able to access uh, vocabulary for people. This is Robert Rogers back live. You're listening to my pre-recorded interview with Dr. Wendy McGee from the Institute of Neuropalliative Rehabilitation in London, England. 
My internet radio program is on every week, same time, 11 o'clock Pacific time on Thursdays. I invite all of you to check in every week because I interview experts like Dr. McGee as well as individuals who are getting relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. My mission is to be able to change that universal belief template that seems to linger out there in the ethers that once you're diagnosed with the symptoms of Parkinson's, you are always going to get worse. It's not true. That's simply a false belief. And I believe what really helps is to have constant, continuous reinforcement that, in fact, lots of people out there are getting wonderful relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. So the program's always here. We are always here to provide support and information to you. It's very clear that we all can have down days and days when we uh, we are convinced that uh, that the the, uh, the health is not going to get better. And so come here, uh, tune in. You can either call three four seven nine four five five three five eight during any of the shows. That number never changes. Or of course you can connect on your uh, computer at no cost at the main blogtalkradio.com uh, uh, page. You can also sign up for the Parkinson's Recovery Newsletter on the main website, which is www.parkinsonsrecovery.com. You simply enter your email address, and I'll always give you a reminder about the radio programs that are coming up on Thursday morning at 11 o'clock. Back now to this final segment of the interview with Dr. McGee. I am talking to Dr. Wendy McGee, who is an international fellow in music therapy at the Institute of Neuropalliative Rehabilitation, which is located in London, England. There's also some um, references in some of the literature that's listed on uh, the uh, website uh, that addresses music therapy as it applies to goal setting. Tell us more about that. Well, uh, this is possibly an area which is more of interest to professionals than, than, than individuals, but it will hopefully have an impact on, uh, on, on, on the care which music therapists are able to provide for individuals. Really that's about um, uh, improving how a music therapist can work with somebody to plan a program that's just right for the sorts of things they want to achieve. You have talked quite a bit about uh, music therapists um, how would a person go about finding a music therapist to help them out? Is there an association of music therapists? There's an association within most countries, uh, a national association of music therapy. So within Europe, there will be a, a, a national association within, within each of the different countries. Within the United States, there is the American Music Therapy Association. Within Australia, there's the Australia Music Th Australian Music Therapy Association. Within the UK, there's the Professional Association of Music Therapists. So the first thing would be to do uh, just a simple sort of uh, web search for music therapy and the country in which one is. Um, and normally, you can find a music therapist through the, the through what's known as the professional body, the professional association. Certainly for uh, some of the methods I've been talking about within this interview, uh, neurological music therapy, there is a specific database where somebody can find a music therapist who is trained in this very specialist form of music therapy. There is a, a website available at the um, uh, Colorado State University and it is the 
Centre for the Biomedical Research into Music. I hope I've got that right, CBRM. And on this website, you can find a registry of neurologic music therapists, which really spans the globe. Uh, so there are music therapists who are trained uh, throughout the United States, throughout the Far East, across Australia, New Zealand, and now throughout Europe as well. Um, and so that, that might be the first step in terms of finding a music therapist who might be within your country or hopefully even within your same city. Do you do individual consultations? Certainly. And how would a person get in touch with you? Well, I, I mean, I guess finding, finding me on the Internet would be the easiest way of doing that. I wouldn't necessarily be able to have the answers for every person. I might be able to direct them to somebody within their country or to their, their national uh, association where they might be able to find somebody a little bit more local. As I understand it, the work of a musical therapist is typically done in person. Is it possible to do this work at long distance, for example, on the phone? I think uh, to, to have the, the most effective sort of therapy treatment it would be helpful to find a music therapist personally. What I'd also say is that there's a number of websites uh, which offer advice and ideas for people with different sorts of neurological problems and also their carers. There's, um, based within the US, actually it doesn't really matter where, where a website is based, does it? But there's, <laughs> there's a, um, a website uh, called the um, Institute for, uh, I've just lost that, lost that name. Sorry, but if people have a look at the Center for Biomedical Research into Music at Colorado State University. There's also the um, Music Therapy Neurology Network website, which is one that I coordinate, and that provides information for both professionals and lay people. There's also the Institute for Music Neurologic Function, which has uh, many very helpful pages for um, people who want ideas of how to use music at home for themselves or for their loved ones. Um, and certainly a, a lot of the music therapy websites around the world have links to uh, different helpful um, resources for, for using music at home. Are you doing any uh, uh, workshops coming up uh, in uh, England uh, for individuals who have uh, symptoms of Parkinson's that you'd like for people to know about? I'm not running, uh, no, I haven't been, I personally haven't been running workshops for people themselves. I've been more, more involved in terms of training professionals so that people can access those professionals. What I would say though, that there is, is an increasing interest in activities such as Sing for Joy, who as I mentioned before are a choir based in London and Sing for Joy are a choir that have been working in North London for the last six years and have just established a new choir at the um, Queen Square Hospital for um, Neurology in, in London. So for anybody based within London I'd certainly recommend them trying to um, do a bit of an internet search for Sing for Joy and getting in touch with the choir that way. Um, for people in other, other areas of the world, again what I'd suggest is maybe having a look at um, resources for people with Parkinson's and their carers, it might be through the local Parkinson's Disease Society, it might be through user groups, 
uh, or I, I do believe there might be some choirs in other areas of the world as well, for um, specifically around sort of Parkinson's. But but just just to uh, it might sort of be a little bit of trial and error and and fishing around. What is the most important thing you would like people to remember from this interview about music as a therapy? Motivating. We know that uh, music is a very individual thing for, for, for different people, so it has personal meaning, which means it can tap into all sorts of uh, personal, emotional memories. So I'd say, um, if, particularly if more conventional treatments don't feel the right thing or you don't feel like you're getting very far with those, as an adjunct to those, as a part of that, in, 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 in addition to what you're already trying, then maybe think about trying music therapy and using music at home. There are people uh, listening to this who, when they were younger and in either grammar school or high school, played an instrument, either in a band or an orchestra, which they may not have touched for 30 or 40 years. It, would one of your recommendations be to consider the possibility of retrieving that instrument that may be hanging around in the dusty corners of their attics and uh, giving it a, a trial run again? Uh, after maybe not seeing it for about 20 or 30 or 40 years. I mean, years. I, I think this is good advice for anybody, regardless of whether they've got Parkinson's or not. I mean, many of us have played instruments at different stages of our lives and put them in the corner or up in the attic, as you say. So, I mean, yes, I would definitely recommend that in terms of um, developing fine motor skills, uh, developing an interest, developing a hobby, developing something which possibly could be shared with other people, developing a new interest. So I, I would certainly recommend, uh, or, you know, encourage people to, to pick up uh, any sort of engagement with, with, with musical activity. And what we know is that doing music, the, the, the great thing about music is that it's something we do with other people. Yes, we do play on our own and listen on our own, but most often music is something which, which is done with other people. We go to concerts with other people, we play music with other people in orchestras, bands, we dance with other people to music, we sing with other people in choirs, we sing with other people within our, our spiritual worship. So really try and make the most of the social opportunities which music might bring. So don't necessarily do it by yourself. Consider possibilities of joining with other individuals in whatever way might be most uh, of interest to the person. I'd say definitely just don't, don't forget about that. Music's a social, social phenomenon. Uh, is there any evidence at all in the research literature that music can do any harm to a person? Uh, not that I'm aware of, not in terms of music doing harm to a person. I mean, I think what we know um, anecdotally from clinical observations is that certainly music can, because it, music is auditory sound, it's auditory information. So what we know is that uh, sometimes a person really needs minimal auditory stimulation, that they need sort of like a quiet environment rather than an environment which is more complex in its auditory component. So I would just say if you are using music at home with a loved one who has problems, maybe just think carefully about whether is, is sound, more noise, music, the right thing right now or actually would, would, would quiet and silence and rest be a better thing. But in terms of music being damaging, um, I, I'm not aware of research which says that it can actually cause harm. 
How can people get in touch with you if they would like to pursue these issues further? The Institute of Neuropalliative Rehabilitation. Certainly have a look there, and uh, that's one way of contacting me and also finding out more about music therapy for people with neurological difficulties. Robert Rogers here. We're back, and I want to extend my deep gratitude to Dr. Wendy McGee for that illustrious and fascinating discussion of music therapy and how music can be used to help anyone who has the symptoms of Parkinson's. Dr. McGee mentioned a number of websites during that last segment of the interview. She also sent me a written explanation, the details of each of those websites, plus a few others. And that is posted up on the Parkinson's Recovery blog. So be sure to check that out. There's some really fascinating resources there for you. That website is www.blog.parkinsonsrecovery, that's all one word, dot com. And you'll see that's the most recent posting uh, there on the blog where there are about six different website links. And at the very top, there's the link to her website where you can actually contact her personally. So be sure to check on those references and resources. There is a wealth of information that uh, you'll be able to get access to by linking on any of those recommended websites. I want to encourage uh, those of you who may not be musicians or may not have any close experience with music to consider that as a possibility. What I've discovered about neural network renewal is that it really takes our being able to do something we haven't done for a long time or something that is totally new. If we tend to do something over and over again that's familiar, for example, I'm a writer, so when I write, that's a very familiar kind of skill for me to exercise. I'm not actually exercising as many neural networks as I would if I would knit. I've never knitted before. So doing something entirely different is a way of actually firing up and renewing new neural networks, which, of course, is a way to get wonderful relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. So if you're not a musician, if you've never had any acquaintance with music, consider uh, taking up an instrument. There are lots of old instruments for sale at yard sales. Or if you are a musician, uh, the invitation is get that instrument out of the attic and begin playing it again. Um, it helps uh, for all the reasons that Dr. McGee explains, but it also helps because it will renew those neural networks. We have two great ideas for support groups now from the last two radio programs. The first is from Leif Ogard, who is the author of I Have Parkinson's, But Parkinson's Does Not Have Me. And he basically tells us that with his support groups, with individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's, he doesn't sit around and talk about all the problems everybody is having. They go out and go bowling every week. Dr. McGee explains a never very different activity, which sounds like it can have just as positive a result, and that is get together with individuals that have the symptoms of Parkinson's. And again, instead of just sitting around in these low-frequency places where uh, it's very easy to get depressed, 
Instead, uh, get together with individuals and go bowling. It's physical exercise and, I mean, uh, sing, uh, go singing as well as go bowling. I suppose you could do both at the same time. You could sing while you bowl. And that, again, are two great recommendations of what you can do uh, if, in fact, you're very discouraged about the kinds of things that are happening with your particular support group. And that's what's up at Parkinson's Recovery on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, where all the men are handsome, and where all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you are connected to this Internet radio program, that you are on the road to recovery. Good day, and I look forward to visiting with you one week from today. Goodbye.